When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, the folks at Bella Catering are one of the best catering companies in the whole of Australia and especially in Sydney. But due to the coronavirus restrictions, those lovely folks led by Glenn and Maria are unfortunately struggling but we can help them and I want to help them with this show. So if you guys can and you like delicious things and you're in Australia and you're in Sydney and you're within about a 20K to 30K radius, which is pretty much the entire um, Sydney basin, if you want delicious food at a great price and you want it delivered to your house, bellacatering.com.au is where you need to go. Absolutely delicious stuff, family stuff, like, you know, huge, huge get-togethers that we're doing virtually and things like that. You want leftovers, you want that sort of thing, bam, bellacatering.com.au. Glenn is absolutely a deeply questionable individual. However, that should not be held against him. He has a lovely wife, he has a lovely family, and they've got great staff, and they are awesome. Now, on to the show. This is an excerpt from All the President's Men, written by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Without dwelling on his problems, Bernstein called a telephone company source and asked for a list of Barker's calls. That afternoon, his contact called back and confirmed that the calls listed in the Times had been made. But, he added, he could not get a fuller listing because Barker's phone records had been subpoenaed by the Miami District Attorney. You mean the FBI or the US Attorney's Office, don't you? No. The phone company in Miami said it was the local district attorney, the man said. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a film critic for the LA Times, a former chief critic for Variety, and just someone who, when I read his stuff, particularly his, and when cinema still existed in 2019, he wrote a great piece about all of the best <laughs> films in, of 2019. He's a, he's a guy with such rich insight that he can incisively frame together a really thoroughly entertaining whodunit like Knives Out and the most incisive class commentary of the year, also thrillingly entertaining and now best picture winning Parasite, and entangle them together as his sort of co, uh, co-winners uh, of the year in such a way that it's just like, man, I'm so thankful for him because he's just, there's no one like him. So it is with my great pleasure now um, to chat to him on a podcast, finally. Um, he is officially, according to Manola Dargis, uh, her running mate for the president of the film Twitter community in 2020, <laughs> if the elections are ever held. Uh, it's my great pleasure to talk to Justin Chang. Justin, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes. Thank you, Blake. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. And thank you for that ridiculously kind <laughs> intro. And Manola and I talked about this. I, I have already dropped out and endorsed her, you know, should have done it months ago. Oh, now everyone is, everyone is getting in line behind President Dargis. <laughs> it's, as it's, there's a lot of that going around. There's a lot of that endorsing other candidates. A lot. <laughs> there's a lot of that going around. <laughs> Oh man, 
but yeah, no, she is. Uh, she's definitely faithfully our president. Um, and my president. Uh, can I? Can I talk to you? I mean, look, it, it's great to have you on the show, and I'm excited to talk to you. And I know how prepared you are for this, but I, I just want to go back and take take a, a second and say, films like this, like all the presidents' men, like these sort of '70s new Hollywood esque era. This is because I'm not so familiar with it. How does that stack up in your canon of films? Because when I read your stuff, one thing I think you're <laughs> very good at is framing, I guess, the the socio, socio-political commentary that sometimes is not, or, or is definitely, uh, mm. is definitely there. Some somewhat can be more implicit or it can be directly explicit that people sort of, it's simmering under the surface. But I just wonder how formative these films have been for you as, as an emerging critical voice uh, in, in your career. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, not having lived through the seventies, I don't know that, um, you know, I mean, this is such a rich period in American cinema, needless to say. Um, and I think that there's, you know, there are critics who lionize this period as the greatest, you know, in American history. And I'm not even saying they're wrong. I'm not <laughs> frankly sure if they're right or wrong. Yes. I don't even know if I can have that discussion, but, um, and then there's been, you know, waves of like, well, you know, they're just romanticizing it to some extent. Um, I think it's just really interesting how with all the president's men in particular, how this movie has become, you know, as much as, or maybe even more than some of its, you know, other, you know, new Hollywood counterparts, such a touchstone yes. in recent years. I mean, I know so many things that you've talked about on, on your podcast before, like, um, you know, Zodiac being, you know, a movie that I, you know, it's, it feels like, you know, when I first saw it, it was like, Oh, that's the equivalent. And maybe it's a movie that even means a little bit more to me just because it's more, not because it's more recent, but just, um, it, it even feels like just this apotheosis of what all the president's men is doing. And then, you know, in more recent years, something like Spotlight, which, you know, I don't think is as great cinema as either of the, the previous two I just mentioned, but it's, it's just interesting how the kind of, you know, think a bit about, you know, Manny Farber's uh, phrase termite art or Manny Farber's expression termite art comes to mind. Yes. These are movies that burrow deep down into the process. They're, they're great process movies. Yes. And something, and so I don't, and so I would almost want to separate all the presence men from some of the others because I think it's, hardly the only example, but there's something really unique about this as a process movie. And I love process movies. I love movies that risk your, I don't even want to say the word boredom or tedium, you know, yes. because there's nothing to me, there's nothing boring or tedious about these movies. But I think if you are tired or inattentive or you're like, why are we watching? You know what? You know, it's like, I think, you know, somebody once described, you know, Zodiac and movies like this as great, like filing cabinet cinema, where it just feels, I think it was Nathan Lee when he reviewed Zodiac and the village voice. Great. It was a fantastic review. And he said, it's like, it feels like you're being stuck in a filing cabinet for two or two and a half hours. And that's great. And I think it's like, it's something about, you know, and, where, you know, you have, you know, you have a two or two and a half hour stretch and you, so you do have to compress a lot of data and a lot of information, but, um, but at the same time, you're not just, you're not cheating. You're kind of letting the process do the work. You're not trying to connect the dots for the audience. Um, and, you know, William Goldman's screenplay, of course, does this brilliantly. So yeah, it's, um, I'm really interested in movies, um, that risk losing a portion of the audience, I would say, you know, and then maybe even overtly flirt with doing that um, because 
it's forcing you to make the leap. It's forcing you to, to engage more. So that's what's really exciting about this movie in particular for me. I love when you said, when you're talking about risking tedium, there's, um, and, and process movies, there's the filing cabinet movie. I love that. And I, but there's a film that I always, that always leaps out to me. And it was a test that one of my film and media, um, uh, lecturers did one time as a, a, a Abbas Kiristami, he's an Iranian filmmaker. He made a film called a taste of cherry. And there's a scene mm-hmm. well, there's mul- actual multiple scenes in a taste of cherry where someone's phone's ringing and the reception where they are is terrible. So they <laughs> run out of the house, they run down to their car, they run into the car, they turn the car on the car drives, like, you know, 500 meters up the road to a hill where a ch- tree is and answers the phone on the hill. And in the normal cinematic language or what you would be taught in every single textbook about how to make that scene meaningful, you would have the phone ring. You would maybe if you wanted to show that they had to go to a lot of trouble, you do some fast, you know, very sexy Edgar Wright, you know, cuts and you would get into that <laughs> hill, right? Like I, I think Edgar Wright does those cuts so so sexily. Um, he, do, he, he, he does not, uh, Abbas Sami does not do that. He makes you agonize <laughs> over <laughs> every part of that and and we used to my lecturer used to do it as he'd play it and just make people watch it and infuriate an entire audience and then there was just the it was like a dog whistle for us film obsessives in the actual audience of that lecture going oh there is something so amazing about how in touch kirasami is with our experience and this agony and you know the, the president's does never never goes quite to the, those lengths i think zodiac is much closer than both but it's it's yeah. those things where if you can affect the same agony in the people who are enduring this process too in the audience, there's such a skill to that. And there's, I don't know, there's something addictive about it. I love, I don't think many people would want to go back and do that again and again with the Kiristami example, but with this example, I love, <laughs> I love the toil. I love this toil of this movie. No, exactly. I, I love that too. And it's, it's the idea of, leaving in those things that in a different filmmaker with a different purpose may have left out. And you're absolutely right that, you know, you know, it's interesting too. You mentioned Kiristami. I could think of, you know, I a friend who I took to see a Michael Haneke film once said also the same thing about that. You know, it's something we were much more used to, I think in certain strains of, you know, European art cinema, realist cinema, where it's like, why are we watching this? Why are we watching this mundane activity? And I think it's, I love dwelling on this because I think it speaks to the reason like, why do we watch movies? And for yeah. some, it is for an escape and it is for more, you know, it is, it is for excitement and drama. And for some of us, it's like, it is to experience the mundane realities of life to recognize those, those realities in a more heightened kind of way. And it's funny because I know that, you know, the standard way sometimes to talk about something like all the president's men is that it's, it's such a wonderfully low key movie and that you, you mundanity is a word that I will probably overuse in this next <laughs> hour because it's, it's one of my favorite. I love, you know, I'm just kind of, I love the cinema of the mundane, but it's funny because when I first saw this and I guess I'll might as well go to that. It's like, I saw this in college as yes. a journalism student. Mm-hmm. I may have said before then I can't remember the first time I saw it, but it was really weird because I was one of the, one of those people who actually saw it, in tandem with reading the book because it was assigned reading in like my journalism law class and history of journalism classes. So, um, you know, it's interesting when you're receiving it from that angle, you know, it's like, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, this is, you know, the most lionized duo in, in, in American journalism. And, um, you know, just 
watching it then, I was struck by, oh yeah, the, the rhythms of this movie, the, the visual language of this movie is much more, and I, I think I was watching it on some, probably some crappy VHS copy that I can't remember, you know, and, you know, it didn't, so you know, it didn't, many it didn't, of it didn't, us have been in a <laughs> overlit library on a shitty VHS right? watching classic I movies. Absolutely. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I, I was watching like Guitar and Wong Kar Wai movies in my library. Uh, it was like horrible. Like, and, 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 it's, it's, and, yeah, it's, it's the, mo- you, you know, it, I reckon, you know, when if you if I'd had Letterbox back then, shit, it would have looked impressive. Like the classics that I that I absolutely just mowed through in that shitty library on terrible TVs with interruptions and whatever. But yeah, like some, you know, that's the only way that you could do it. That's the only way you could do these things. It really was, and so it was kind of a revelation, I think, even just to rewatch it. And I've been kind of rewatching it just over and over, just individual scenes here and there in the past two weeks or so and on my, you know, decent, reasonably sized TV screen streaming it. Um, and it looks great. I mean, it's still nowhere near. I've, I've never seen this movie on the big screen and I feel like that's a huge loss. And the minute, you know, once we're able I, to go to theaters again, I, I, I was, would love to. If it's, I, if it's, I was so lucky in Oz, in Oz, they do classics at sort of one of our big cinema chains called event cinemas in Sydney. And, I saw two films in like two weeks with a couple of my buddies, Garth Franklin and Stu Coote, who've both been on the show and big parts of my other show, One Heat Minute. And so we were making a rhythm, like one week was Presidents and Stu and I had both seen it. Garth had never seen it or maybe had only seen bits and pieces of it and we saw it on the big screen. It was in a digital print. It looked amazing. To be with an audience was incredible. But it wasn't on 35 mil. And I was just like, it's one of those things where you're like, oh man, if I was at a New Bev or like in Sydney, the equivalent is like the Haiti and all film. It's like, if someone had a 35 mil print of this, I feel like you would, I don't know, just, I don't know, it would leap off the screen in a different way. And the other tragedy, which I'll just say again, because it was just one of my last, you know, uh, experiences is there was the searches. They had a digital print of the searches, but it wasn't in the correct aspect ratio, Justin. It wasn't in, it wasn't in VistaVision. And it was just like, it, yeah, it was, it was terrible. You can't do that. But, but I agree with you. It's, there's something about, it looks tremendous and the example that i want to touch on with you is that and this is a real thing that i uh, i think about now with spotlight is there's definitely like a bunch of criticism about that movie around lacking style and i really feel like if the voice of tom mccarthy as the director and filmmaker in that movie is anything it is leaf schreiber like Lee Schreiber's character is yeah. there. And at the end, they've got the story. He's got the story and he's circling <laughs> red with a red pen. Bless the red pen, right? Ben Bradley in this film. Oh, he's, no, cir- absolutely. He, he's circling the adjectives and he's like, get the adjectives out of this story. And I feel like that's Tom McCarthy's whole style. So if the intent is get the adjectives out of this story, tell it as ugly and as raw as possible because the emotion and the time and the regret and all those things are just going to be on the canvases of my performers' faces. And God, it's just like, no one's wearing makeup. Everyone has every line in their face. Like, you know, way, like I think, I think of Roger from Mad Men in it. I always forget the actor's name, but I'm like, he's Roger from Mad Men forever. John, like, John Slattery. John yes, Slattery. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> John yeah. Slattery's face is like in this movie, he's never looked so haggard and you're like wow like and as as roger he's a stud like he's just his hair's always perfect his suit's amazing and so yeah i think that that's one thing about this film is while it is that cinema of the mundanity and in those newsrooms it's you're grinding through the style is so beautifully interwoven in the language 
in a way that is, I think, is incomparable to something like, you know, you can't compare it to Spotlight because Spotlight's doing something completely different. Right. It is doing something different. And, oh, my God, Liev Schreiber in that movie. I won't, we won't talk about Spotlight too much, but um, that's my favorite performance. in. I think it was one of my – I love that performance so much. And, and it just shows you how you can be riveting. Completely underrated. Just, it's like his best performance in his whole career. It's, it's truly the best thing I've seen him do. And he is like, it's just, his face is just like made of just immovable granite oh. in that movie. And yet so expressive too. And it's, I, I love that we're talking about this because yeah, it's like even within, you know, this, this month, if you talk about just newsroom cinema, I yes. guess you look at David Fincher, you look at Tom McCarthy and you look at uh, Alan Pakula. It's like, there's so many, there's such a, there's such a gradient even there. There's such yeah. a diversity of style even there. And I would say, you know, Fincher is the one who is maybe the most overtly kind of virtuosic in the way he places the camera and yes. the colors of the news and everything. And then Pakula is somewhere in between, you know, but you know, it was, you know, when I see it again someday, I'm sure it'll be a revelation, but it, it's funny, <laughs> even, even seeing it now for the first time in, in some years, you know, it's a movie I, I, I go back to every so often, but it's funny how what might've seemed slow or taxing, you know, the first time, I don't even know if it's me. I don't think I found it really difficult or anything uh, the first time I saw it, but it just, now it's like, Oh my God, this thing moves. Oh, I mean, man. it's like, and you almost want perversely the perverse side of me that would love to see, you know, it's, it's funny because it's, it's cinema. It's like, it's the compactness is part <laughs> of the experience. I mean, the, the compression and the economy of the storytelling is, is part of the experience, but you almost want like, you know, the five hour experience. You want to see them, yeah, you know, go, along. Just, you know, go yeah. for the, you know, go for the back breaks, go for the coffee break, you know, what, you know, it's like Co- you would find, and I'm sure, you know, Co- find, and breaks, I'm sure that would be a few more story takes. <laughs> you want to see Sally oh. can go out to the, to, to score that information. You know, there's so many of those little bits that you're like, see the bookkeeper coming home. You know, you, that I, I totally agree. There's that, like, there's that hint that you, you just want something else. Well, I would say too, here is my one, my old pet peeve about this genre of journalism, print journalism movies in particular, as great as these movies are, as much as I love all the presence of men is I would love for us to actually read the stories like on screen yeah. somehow, like maybe, one of them. I mean, it's always, you know, and it's, it's like, I know you get it. It's like, that would be just truly perverse. You know, what, what were you reading? The reading column inch by column inch on the screen. That'd be ridiculous, you know, but you know, here, you know, in most, the convention is usually you get a montage of headlines or in, or in all the presence men, you get the glimpses of the front pages and, you know, you as they're being delivered the, to the white house, right? Yeah. Delivered to the white house. Yeah. And that's great. And that's, that's, and I get it. It's like, yes, that's all you need, <laughs> but it's like, actually, you know, and even I, I would almost love to go more obsessive and like, what is, you know, close up, what is he actually circling on the page? You know, yeah. and I realized I'm probably speaking only to you and, and myself and I don't know who else. Would <laughs> anyone like listening to this show, anyone who's listening <laughs> is feeling the same. We're, we're absolutely true. No, I'm not, I'm not speaking to the void. I'm sure there are people who, you know, the listener, <laughs> you know, who who's find an, that, um, yeah. You know, who's an interesting case study with that though is, um, uh, David Yates, who directed the, the Harry Potter films, yeah. directed State of Play. Which was the adaptation, really, yeah. yeah, and and which is a very you know a very good film, um, and and one of the one of the rare examples where you bridge the gap between what we'd call like all the presidents and and zodiac at classical journalism and later what Tom McCarthy's doing with Spotlight, bridging sort of twenty first century journalism and twentieth century journalism together, um, 
And it's funny that Yates, for a guy who like clearly is into the news and into the cycle, you know, and he does it in State of Play and loves being in that journalism, he's it's actually in the Harry Potter movies that he uses that device more overtly than any other film. Like there's a story from Rita Skeeter and you read <laughs> Rita Skeeter's story. Like when you were saying that, I'm like, what other movie does that? I'm like, it's fucking Harry Potter. Like it's the only one I was, and I always thought that is such a great technique because it's a way it's, it's that little bit longer than just a pure headline. It's kind of this intermingling montage. There's the moving pictures. It becomes a way, a bridging, a bridging graphic to, to take you as opposed to an establishing shot. He's just like, I'm going to just go hard in the paint on this is my version of an establishing shot uh, for this movie. And I think it's in the fifth one, Order of the Phoenix, which is his first. And I always thought that device was so terrific because it helped him move. It helped him get from point mm-hmm. A to point B. It helped him to exposition dump um, and keep the momentum up in what was already a long movie. And yeah, I just, I don't think I've seen it anywhere else. I didn't think we'd get there. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know we'd I arrive. I love that we're talking Potter. about Harry Potter. No, I, I am always, I mean, the people are like, too good to talk about Harry Potter. I don't mind, you know, we, and it's just, but no, I mean, that is also that particular story in the cycle too is very much about, you know, political deceit and about skullduggery. And, you know, yes. in, in that case, journalism is a very negative entity, you know, yes. because Rita Skeeter <laughs> is a total hack, a total part, you know, sort of, Voldemort kind of hack or something. I'm, I'm, I'm butchering the fantasy. People are going to get mad at me, but, but you know, exactly right. I mean, it's, and I love that the idea of bringing that kind of rigor, even to a fantasy world, um, you know, we could use some more of that. <laughs> well, yeah. From, from a fantasy world to a fantasy heartthrob, we arrive at our scene, Robert Redford in a bathrobe, uh, a wonderful little minute, and again, in the last few that I've recorded, and I'm going to people get sick of me saying this, but sometimes when scenes unfold, they're just perfect. They just feel like they were intended for six to be 60 seconds. So Justin and I are going to watch this scene, the reveal of how to meet Deep Throat and the beginnings of of the scene uh, as uh, as we see Woodward for the first time go to meet Hal Holbrook's Deep Throat. And we hear uh, some beautiful David Shire score and some Washington Slick Streets. And we're going to watch it together. You guys are going to listen along. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk all about it. Wall Street prices took a pounding yesterday. The Dow Jones closing down six and three quarter points in moderate trading. The dollar took a beating on the European money market, dropping to its lower market level under heavy selling pressure. In sports in Muirfield, Scotland, Lee Trevino and Tony Jacklin share the halfway lead in the British Open Golf Tournament, both at 141. Johnny Miller is back. scene i love that scene it's so great and it's funny because i'm you you told me it was this minute i was kind of relieved that oh it's this minute not the next (laughs) one the next one is great too but it's way you know it's 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 (laughs) 
You, you, it doesn't have as much no, incident. No, let's yes, say. Yeah. No, there's not as much incident. It is. It is in the minutia. Like you're just you're in a cab. You're changing cabs. You're walking. It's it, there's the lead up to this scene because you know what. Hopefully, people are gonna enjoy about the show is like when you when you're stitching this whole scene together. It's kind of impossible not to talk about the surrounding minutes. But this yep. particular this particular sequence is once the flag goes out. It's so hard to imagine going. What is he doing? Like, oh, is yeah. this the lengths that Deep Throat is making him go to? Like, who is this guy? And so it's nice to just see this. I, I, I love this unfolding moment. It really sets the tone of like, again, it's one of the, it's almost like that shot in the 30th minute and the 31st minute of the Library of Congress as it's pulling out. Yeah. We're being dwarfed. We don't know what yeah. this big system is, but it's there. You're getting, you, there's, there's a sense in which you're watching the scene, you know, the paranoia has sort of been simmering for a while, but suddenly this real palpable element of danger enters the picture because, yes. and part of that is what I think this scene does so well is I think it speaks actually to a little bit of the difference between the movie and the book um, where, you know, it's the withholding of information because you don't know who this guy is. You haven't heard the words deep throat yet, of course, you know, um, deep throat, and we now know, of course, since 2005 to have been Mark Felt. Um, and it's funny because after I, I, I watched the scene and I say, I, I went back to the book and I reread this part and the way the book lays it out is so much more, you know, obviously kind of cut and dry giving it's the, the book is trying to give you that information and the movie plays it for suspense. And, you know, even just the details, the, the minutia of the, the system that they work, that they work out, um, you know, in terms of with the red flag and the circling of the page 20 in the New York times, it's like, it's almost, you get the sense it's like, has, is deep throat. Like, does he have this apartment bugged and you don't know who he is. You don't know the relationship. There's a lot of like variables that have not been introduced. And, and, and I think that the way, and it, it tells you, I love this thing too, because of course, obviously this is very standalone about Bob Woodward this whole scene and you're getting a sense of who he is too and his history because up to this point, you know, he's had this, you know, this, this somewhat catchy, but gradually finding its way back and forth with Carl Bernstein. And, you know, he is sort of the rookie of the two. Yes. He has only been with the paper for nine months. Um, this, you know, and, and has, has something to prove is sort of seen as this, you know, preppy, not very serious, you know, uh, like can, can he cut it is, is the thing. Yes. And, um, you know, and the story has stalled and, and I think it's interesting too. And, and really just in terms of the setup of this, this whole moment, it shows you something about, you know, Bernstein's, uh, response and attitude is to sort of you know, kind of go to the mat and fight with Ben Bradley about it. No, it's a really important story. And then Bob Woodward's attitude is, no, we, we don't have it. He said, we don't have it. Let's find another way. And I think it just tells you, it's just a really nice, you know, shows you the, the difference in, in their characters and their temperaments, obviously, you know, prove very complimentary. But then Woodward goes and he, you know, he makes this phone call and then, you know, and seems to have gotten shut down, but then this happens. And it's just... And so it, it, it's this, it's literally where the out, the story is suddenly, it almost feels like the story is pursuing him all of a sudden. And I just love, I don't know where I, I, I have so many, I don't even know where to start with. So why don't we, I guess, from let, the beginning. Let's start with one thing. I just wanted to jump right onto yeah. the coattails of what you were saying is what we know about Woodward so far, where he's been really virtuosic 
compared to Bernstein's ability to wrangle a story and just show that it is in yeah. it's in his ability to extract information out of people. And so there's that great scene in the courtroom where he's just he's extracting so much more information that no one wants to be giving him. I don't know. Talk to him. And he's having a conversation five minutes after with a person who's already said, I don't want to talk to you. And so that is his real wonderful skill. And so then for a, for a lull in this movie, which again, when you watch it in real time, you blink and you're here. You don't, you, you know, if things are all happening so, so fast, but when you're here, you're like, Oh, this is a guy who's really good at getting information out of people. And so it's in this moment where the movie starts to rest on his shoulders that like, oh my God, he's got a source that can see a flag on his balcony. Like mm-hmm. exactly like you said, he's got a source who who's able to communicate with him by putting a note in his paper between the time at like whatever 4am that the New York Times is delivered and yeah. how, who is that contact? Where are they from another paper? And it gets you to ask all those questions. But I think that's that one thing that unlike Bernstein's, you know, tenacity and, and his greenness mm-hmm. are their probably weaknesses. It's, it's Carl's being able to glance at a news article and go, where is the actual story here? And how do I layer it? It's his ability to talk to people in this movie. And that, and that's like echoed through his entire career. Right. So I love that in this scene, it's like, Oh, now the doors opened up, but we don't even know what door this is. We don't even know what, where, where it's going to. We don't, we don't know, and it's very true, and even just what the realization that Woodward had a source ranked, who was positioned at one of the highest levels of the federal government, as, yes. and again, we don't know that, watching this, which adds to the sense of danger. I, I was just so taken with just the detail, because you, know, you think about this, you know, how, how true to the, you know, and it, it can be very boring sometimes to talk about, did it really happen or not? Although with the movie, you know, with, with, a, with one of the great journalism movies all, of all time, you know, you, that that question becomes a lot more yes. interesting, and and so it, it was just so fascinating to me the details of the system that they worked out, and how did they know? And I think that you know this is again where there is an economy, a narrative economy in this movie that leaves out the scenes where they were probably working it out. It just seems like all of a sudden, like you know, yeah. Deep Throat just has just knows exactly knows knows the layout of his apartment, <laughs> knows you know knows the delivery schedule for his New York Times. I have to say too, and you know, because it starts kind of with the New York Times. Um, by the way, another pet peeve of mine with journalism movies is newspaper front pages that look nothing like <laughs> the actual front page. I mean, I know it's easier in 1976 to duplicate a 1972 front page, but I've seen, you know, it's just like this, you know, newspaper front page that looks a little more like my high school newspaper than it does. Like, I, I'm kind of a font. Yes, I love typefaces. I love, you know, I love. Um, I love kerning and letting and all that. You're, you're allowed to have that. That is that is a totally, uh, a totally job appropriate pet peeve. My greatest pet peeve in multi million dollar movies is really terribly photoshopped family pictures. Like if I'm in the middle of a rigorous, like it could be a, a whodunit, a thriller, like it's got me. If I see a dumb, like photoshopped face, I'm like, how? How did this get through? How? Like, how do they not have somebody in place to catch that? Send it to blatant- the inter- send it oh to my the God. internet. Send it to the internet. Like in two seconds on Twitter, someone will have one better for you. Like just stop. Yeah, not nothing infuriates me more. So yeah, we'll get we'll get back to our pet peeves later. No, no, no. no. But no, I, I think that to me, for the significance of the New York Times is really you know, and this is something that the rivalry between the Times and the Post is very important in this yes. movie, and also in in the in the Post, Steven Spielberg's you know movie prequel to all the president's men, basically. 
Um, and I just love that, you know, the note from Deep Throat to Woodward is being passed like under, you know, within the fold of the New York Times. I mean, it's just that this is the paper, you know, this is another, not an adversary, but this is who they're competing with. This is the paper of record that the Post is trying to, you know, and will eventually not only, um, you know, keep up with, but will actually beat to the story. And so there's something just kind of, um, very fitting about that. It's so and, omnipre- know, it, it, it's it, so omnipresent yeah. in in his reality that I'm not going to bother putting it in the post for that day. It's going in the Times because I know you're reading it. I know that you're going to know be you're reading it. it. No, you have a delivery. And I was just I went down kind of a rabbit hole <laughs> reading this, and where it just like you know it, it kind of had something to do with you know how accurate is what we're seeing because apparently, you know, Woodward was very particular about his New York Times every day. And you see in the scene, too, this stack of newspapers, yes. you know, who reads them religiously, doesn't throw them away. They're just sitting there in a pile. And, um, you know, he was very particular. And then but some people were saying that, oh, you know, it wasn't delivered to his door. And he had, so how could, how could <laughs> Super on the note? And then I think Woodward himself said, well, no, they were actually it was labeled to him. So he, he insisted on his own labeled copy and, and all of this. So kind of people trying to debunk to this, you know, how, yeah. you know, the accuracy of certain of these details. But, um, I just love that, you know, this, this reverence that everyone has for the New York times as, you know, the, the you know, as, as the greatest newspaper, even as they are trying to, um, undermine it, it it's a very, <laughs> nice touch. and, um, you know, yeah. So it's, and also, you know, it, it's like, it's, it's the New York times. It's also, it's the red flag. I mean, it's it so funny, like it doesn't a, look a literal good. red. It, it, it doesn't look no, but it's a literal red <laughs> flag. How, how more on the nose could that be? And yet by all accounts, it seems that this was something where I believe Woodward was apparently out and found this red cloth, just lying somewhere. And he brought it back with him and put it and it was a friend like put it in the flower pot. And so it's like, and, and again, yeah. So how did deep throat know this? Had he been there? Had he, you know, presumably, I don't know. It's, it, and again, the movie is not telling you any of this, but he, the fact that they have this elaborately worked out system and, and again, you know, the color red, you know, which is a color that recurs throughout this movie, um, in the newsroom yes. and in other places. And just, it just, it just pops up. And as this sort of, you know, this, this, this harbinger of danger, you know, and literally for that is like, you know, whether it's like he, here he is like putting out his, his, you know, his bat signal or his, you know, his red. <laughs> can, can I, can I just say, can I just say it's, it's so funny when you get to a moment, I've been watching this scene for so long and I'm like, and you just go, it's a literal red flag, Blake. And I'm it's just like, like I'm just like, like, oh my God, I have never articulated, actually said the words. It is a red flag. Yeah, of course. Of course it's a red flag. Of course it's a red flag. Couldn't be anything else, like- Justin. <laughs> I mean, it took me like I think a fifth viewing to realize just how on the nose it was. When I was, you know, it's one of those things where you know, this, you know, where you think maybe they would have changed it to make it seem more realistic. <laughs> <laughs> that, like, no, this it, the the truth is stranger. But I, I I love that it's it is so on the nose, but it's also the way that it's and and you can you can attest to this as a guy who you know scrutinizes so many films and sees so many films. It's like the economy of the if you now in this moment where other moments we want to get lost and dive into the minutiae, the fact that they go, the system, it works and we're going to gloss yeah. over it. 
makes it effortless. And it's like, we're not going to focus on that. We'd rather focus on what it takes for him to hit the, to pound the pavement, to have a system to do that. We're not going to talk about how it's worked out. It actually makes it more, it underscores the mystery of it and the system that they've got to circumvent way more if you just, it happens. Like these guys have to do things like this and and would you know? And this is just Redford's earnestness and sincerity and sort of you know all American charm. He's just kind of like, oh, this is strange, and puts the red flag out there and jumps <laughs> yep. in a cab. And he's just like, I guess I better do this. This he's is how I got to do it. He's so businesslike about it. And to what you were saying about, um, you know, you could make an entire movie that consisted just with his interactions with Deep Throat. Um, oh, yeah. And but and the movie, but this is where that is where so much of the source of the intrigue lies. And this is a movie, Lubbock's movie is that it is explaining a lot to you. I mean, in some ways it, you know, it's, it's, it's an explanatory kind of movie at the same time. It's intent on preserving some of the mystery of yes. Watergate and some of the mystery that would be debunked, you know, or not debunked, but would be dispelled when, you know, felt came forward and revealed his, his true identity. But here it's like, this is a movie that respects its mystery and knows that that is sort of one of the enduring sources of the power of the story. And, you know, you just, just hit with so many questions, but yeah, the fact that Woodward just does not question it. He just, and it's funny too, this, this is a moment that this scene comes almost like as a bit of an invasion or this moment, it, it's an invasion of his, his privacy at certain time. I mean, you know, we're, we're watching him in this private moment. So the camera's mere presence is that as well. But here he is in his bathrobe and you and Blake, you and I were talking about earlier, just like, you know, it's like <laughs> no one has ever looked better no. with sopping wet hair in a bathrobe. <laughs> it's so funny to me. I think this movie is built on a lot of paradoxes because in some ways it is, you know, these actors, you know, Hoffman and, and Redford are, you know, sort of deglamorizing themselves, you know, you know, dowdying themselves up to play these journalists. But at the same time, you know, is the movie itself, you know, there's only so much they can do. They're, they're glamorizing. How, there's like, it's, it's this, how can you it, not? it's an oxymoronic <laughs> pursuit. Like it's like it's, you, 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 it, they are there to lionize them and their mere presence makes this film viable, right? Like it's like, that's the other practical and pragmatic thing you have to do is, what we Absolutely. when we when you and I encountered it, and by the sounds of things, it was around the same time of our um, of our lives. We sort of encountered it at that level, and and for me, it was university level. Yours was colleges. When you when you encounter this movie for the first time, we're encountering it in this protracted way, like it's completely away from when the film is actually made. And so you, what you have to go back and go is, God, that maintenance of that mystery. And yeah. the, the withholding of facts there is what is keeping people interested who have literally seen nothing but this story in their newspapers for two years, which is something that is unconscionable to you and I. Like, it just doesn't, doesn't even compute. It, it, it's true. I mean, the, the, the economy of the storytelling is in part of exactly as you say. It's a response to the immediacy of the movie, how yes. quickly it followed the events that it portrays. Which and is so it's also like a- crazy, which is crazy. Completely crazy, and you know, I, I, oh my God, it's like it's just funny. It's it reminds me even of, um, 
you know, I mean, different, different case, of course, but you know, when people were asking if it was five years after nine 11, it was too soon to start making that movie. And I understand because that was a different kind of tragedy and trauma, you know, and, and, you know, this, when you're dealing with, with mass death, but you know, I totally get that, but there's something really bracing about, and I know that a movie like all the presence men is more of the exception than the rule, but this, you know, the much vaunted, uh, risk taking of the seventies, the, yes. just the, the no old bard, the, 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 the sense of creative risk, which is what we, we so cherish about that decade. And the fact that they felt that, Oh, this is going to be a really compelling movie that the public is actually going to want to relive this, that there will be something, you know, whether they learn anything new, there'll be something I think they would, but there's something really cathartic about going back to that and here, you know, watching it and play, you know, and I, I think about this a lot because whenever I think about Watergate, when I think about, you know, events that I didn't live through and just, you know, but there's still so much a part of the consciousness of people who are older than I am. I, I, I feel like this almost sense of like yearning almost like, Oh God, I wish I could have lived through that. And so a movie like you know, reading it's, the book, reading so, the coverage, watching this movie is the closest we can get to that. It's so crazy because it's like yeah. that whole Vietnam era. It's like, man, if only we lived during Vietnam. And it's like so dumb. <laughs> it's the stupidest. It's so dumb. I'm like, not this dumb. It's like not nostalgic. I mean, there's this thing with Watergate, there are things to be genuinely inspired by. And yes. think about, you know, if we, you know, everyone is of course, you know, extrapolating that from that onto our present, you know, where just, you know, yesterday when Trump was saying, you know, the president has total authority, it's like, okay, wow. It's like, it, it's, it's enough to make, you know, and, and of course, you know, Charles Ferguson's documentary on Watergate, it's like, it is enough to make you nostalgic for that national historical yes. trauma. At least that was better than at, 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 at least, but, uh, at least for all of Nixon's obsessive flaws and bad things, at least he had the dignity to retire. <laughs> at least. He, I, yeah. It's it, it's so funny is that the Trump presidency is truly the greatest savior for the Nixon legacy. Like it is literally with it, everyone's reflecting and going, you know what? He was fine. He wasn't that bad. He wasn't that bad. I mean, look, we should have kept him in. Watergate, Schmortergate, you know? Um, it's it's one of those crazy things. But no, I agree. There's a... When when we look at it and, and it must happen with cinephiles, like I, I think about exactly what you said, like the creative, um, uh, there's like those creative instigators, these huge tumultuous political moments that are happening. And then all this creative risk that's happening at the same time. And you go, man, you know, I wish I would be in a cinema to have seen taxi driver when it came out, or I wish I was, you know, I wish I was, I wish I was there. And I think this is another, it's another really hugely new Hollywood movie that doesn't get the credit for being a new Hollywood movie. At least the first half is it's Jaws. Like the first half of Jaws yeah. is as new Hollywood as it gets. It is about, and you know, all the memes I've been telling you, it is about a mayor who would rather people die in his town mm -hmm. than close a fucking beach. <laughs> and it's yep. just like, that's as new Hollywood mm -hmm. as it gets. And it then just so happens, and this is the skill of Spielberg, it then absolutely transforms um, into a monster yep. movie. But all of that, I think what actually frames the movie perfectly and keeps us interested and keeps the fire in our belly, it's the context of that. It is that you would be willing for money, for the mm -hmm. economy to sacrifice people's lives, and it's fine, and everyone is in complete agreement about it. But there is a tipping point where morality does set in. 
And that first half, of course, describes the situation that is playing out in cities and communities all over the world. All over the and world. In the US and oh, prescient, to say the least. I mean, it's like, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, if we if I'm we sorry. if we can if we yeah. can do one thing in this podcast, it's to it's to it's to underscore how stupid we both feel for wanting to be back in the seventies for this time. But it's like it just so, might be an indictment of our current situation in the twenty twenty. That God, it, wouldn't it be nicer if we could just be outside and there were wars going on and so, there was so political nice. intrigue? So much better, right? Oh my God! God. But but it's it's truly, and I mean it's. It's telling how you know the you know the movie, which completely holds up right now and feels feels as fresh as it did then. Yes, um, you know what seemed like um, in a, uh, just a, a purely practical, pragmatic, economical storytelling decision back then um, now plays like a, a very just effective suspense device, and you know you're just you're completely you know. If you're coming to this movie, you know, however many 40, 50 years after the events that it portrays, you know, it, it still just works like gangbusters. So, um, and you know, just in the scene too, going back, it's like the sense of like, I think it's a great scene about um, the workaholism of journalism. Yes. You know, this is, you know, you're, you're in, his, this, I think the second time we've seen Woodward's apartment, um, the first time is when he gets called out to the Watergate burglary story to begin with. Um, and you know, you see it's like, it's a very dark, low lit apartment and, um, in complete stark contrast to the fluorescent brightness of, of the newsroom yes. and just the details, you know, the bathroom and everything. And, and you see, it's interesting. A detail that stuck out to me on like my third or fourth time. It's like, he's wearing this wristwatch already, you know, and he's fresh from the shower. And I mean, you imagine he just must have put that. It's like in this little, and I, I haven't, I can't recall if, you know, but I mean, if he's wearing, if he's wearing it fresh out of the shower, it's like he wears it all the time. You know, yes. he must wear it. To, it's like always on the clock and always on, the, just the al- always on the clock and ready to go, whether you're asleep, you know. whether you're out of the shower. Like he's just, that is, it is an odd, it's an odd thing to always think of yourself on the clock, but he clearly does. Like that's, 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 you're so right about the reflex. It must be the first thing he does when he gets out of the shower is dry his hand and put his wristwatch back on. Put his wristwatch on. And it's interesting just looking at his clothing because I, I Woodward is Woodward, Woodward and Redford. They're interchangeable to me. In the movie. It's <laughs> like, and I, I can substitute one for the other. He's such a great actor and he's so good in this. He does not say a word in this entire scene. And yet you, I don't want to say it's like, you know, everything's going on in his head, but you follow, you follow his thought presses, even his, his you follow his thought processes, even his questions without him saying a word, you know, in that shot of the balcony from the outside, which is itself kind of this chilling shot where the, the you know, this apartment of Henry was on the sixth floor of, of where he lived back then. And, you know, but you don't know, you don't know where he, you know, you don't see the top of the, the building. You don't see the bottom. bottom. Yeah. All you see are these identical rooms across the way adjacent. Yes. It's like, is he being watched from one of those? He could be anywhere, right? Anywhere. Um, Deep throat could be anywhere apparently now we know he was watching from below and in in the courtyard or the alleyway or wherever it was but in that shot when Woodward comes out it's like oh he's changed his clothes he's wearing now you know this you know pressed shirt and with the sleeves rolled up and he's wearing trousers and so it's like okay it's just very you know and and then in the next scene shot of course 
when he is, you know, on his way in the cab, you know, he's, you know, fully dressed and everything. So you even just, this is the way you get a little progression. Just, I think just, you know, the clothing tells you so much in this movie and it's just like, it's showing you just the progress of a work day, you know, and the work day for him begins before he's even had the chance to put on a damn shirt, you know? And (laughs) we talked about him being good looking, but I think as well, you, you, you are so right. He's such a damn good actor at knowing what his face can do as a canvas. He doesn't have to say a word. I love all the choices in this movie from Pacula and his performers when they withhold, when they don't say something, um, or in a in a in a huge pregnant pause between the line delivery. Because in this moment, he's like, he doesn't look sure about what's going on, and that's what's great when he put plants the flag. He's not sure. We're not sure. We're directionless mm-hmm. as to where he is. When he's in the cab, he's looking and it's inquisitive and it's confused and it's like i don't know what why i'm now going to the lengths but all of that is just playing out it's like you could you know you can you can almost feel how clinically the 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 direction writing is there just like don't have him saying anything but he's curious he's on the way Mm -hmm. he doesn't know what he's doing and like that being him being so in touch with that mindset in that moment i just love Mm -hmm. it because it's like they're the scenes that you can just watch over and over again because nothing ever ages with emotion like nothing ever ages with his emotion absolutely i think it's instructive to think i hadn't thought about this before but just what would the dustin hoffman carl bernstein version of this oh my god (laughs) maybe you know would he be talking to himself i don't know it's just like it's a completely different kind of scene right a much more kind of uh, he would be smoking Like, like, he'd be be doing those where you're lighting this the new cigarette with the one you've just finished moments. Like, he that would be the Bernstein energy in there. (laughs) Like, he would and he'd be looking everywhere. He might be talking to the cab driver. Like, the scene would play so differently if it was him. It's actually the stillness of Redford and Woodward in this scene. Like, the stillness is like part of it because you have to like that's that as you said, just the leaning in, you're getting closer, nothing's being said, everything's about gesture, everything's about your observations of that second and and, and each each passing moment, like what the hell is going on? Where are we going? Where's he going? Is he going to this big event? Is this where this guy is? And I think for a brief second, we forget, it's like when he gets out of the cab at this event, you're like, oh, you know, the traditional, what is now kind of a, a rote thing is like, oh, you go to a big public place and there's, you know, in, in espionage films, you stand there and then in this crowded room, someone stands directly behind you. They don't look at you and you're talking, you're having a conversation with them and you're not looking at each other, but you're in the same room. And it's like one yeah. of those things. But even the more, you know, I suppose, hallowed turf of an underground car park is about to come up in, in, in <laughs> what, what follows. But, in, in, but yeah, no, God, the Bernstein version I, of this would be hilarious. It would be hilarious. And, and yet I think the... What binds the two is that you re- and you come away. It's it's the twinship actually, as well as the, the 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 contrast between their characters is that you know you think about Bernstein's tenacity and his fearlessness and his confrontational quality, and as you I think alluded to at the beginning, it's like you realize that Woodward it just doesn't you know is a is a more quiet and reserved guy, but also has just as much courage and just as much tenacity in his own way. He is just so unflappable about it. Yes. And just, I mean, this is, you know, this is, this just goes even just to the different personas or personae rather of, of Hoffman and Redford. It's like, you know, you, you, it's not like they, they of course are not these characters, but if you think about the qualities that they just embody, there is always often this stillness about Redford, this, um, this sort of unflappability and just this cool, right? He just yeah. plays it so cool and he knows 
he doesn't make a big deal about it. He knows that this, I mean, he knows also who this guy is. He knows things that we do not. So I think he, he, you know, suspects that yes, he will, you know, emerge from this with his, you know, he's, he's not in <laughs> physical danger unless from, from people who are pursuing him, of course, but you know, he knows the risk and he's willing to take it. And he just goes about it in a way that is just very methodical, very, okay, here I go. And, can we, can we, I guess, can we go to the, when he gets in the cab, that part, can we talk yeah, about that? Um, just, you know, I, I love, you know, just the upsurge of the music, that beautiful music um, with, with its sort of o- the ominous strains of the music. And then he's in the cab and he's sort of just looking ahead, you know, again, not saying anything. And the white house comes into view yeah. behind for, for, for a brief for a period. Yeah. For a fraction of a second. And it's, like glowing, like, I mean, it looks almost like radioactive, which, which of course is, I imagine how it looks at, at night, but it's like, it's, it's so there's, it's, it's, it's also foreshadowing because, um, I can't remember if this is the first time we've seen it in the movie or not, or, but we will definitely see it again as, you know, as the papers are delivered. And I just think it's really this, as, as this visual motif in the movie where we first see it from the outside. And this is like, and we don't, you know, viewers in we're right now we're just you- skating around it. We haven't, we haven't confronted. There aren't, <laughs> no. there aren't any stories that are penetrating. There aren't the, the amazing no. scene where the person starts to take photographs of Woodward, uh, sorry, of, of Bernstein with his FBI counterpart out the front. You know, we we haven't gotten close. This is just no. this beautiful little beacon in the background, and and they've done it so cleverly with. A whole stack of government buildings and monuments all the way up to this point is just hints of a system that is just there. It is there as this big monolithic thing that is just around in this city. It's there and you know, you could blink and miss it. Yes. Um, and, but it's, but it's, the, and he doesn't really even seem to notice it. I mean, I don't think he, I mean, undoubtedly driven past it many number of times. It's no big deal. And at this, this is the point where they know it's, you know, this question of just, how far up the chain of command does this go? Does it, does it reach the Oval Office? And, you know, of course we know that it does, but for him, it's just this, it's this, you know, this beautifully moody dissolve from before to here. And it's like, here's the, the impregnable fortress of the white house looming in the darkness. And it's like, this is their goal. This is the end game. This is where, you know, this is where it will, this story is ultimately going to take them. And I love how later throughout the movie, they are not there when the papers are delivered, when the delivery guy drives through the gate and, you know, the security check and everything. But every, you know, the movie is like bringing us closer and closer and finally like kind of penetrating that border in, in subsequent scenes. So it's just beautifully laying out the groundwork, you know, visually, structurally for what is going on, you know, in the movie. Well, I, so. think, that, I think that that is the perfect place yeah. to end this beautiful conversation. <laughs> Which is that we are gonna we're gonna keep going, and this next steps into this underground car park are gonna continue to get us closer to penetrating those White House lawns. Yeah. I have been having a great time talking to you, Mister Justin Chang. This has been a thrill. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. And thank you, Blake. Oh. And I have to say, what you have done is you've also done the same thing that the great Manola Dargis did, which is that you mentioned Zodiac so effusively once again that now you have to know that <laughs> in July we start a 12-episode miniseries called Zodiac Chronicle, and I'm going to have to have you back for that. Like, we're going to have to talk about Zodiac. So we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to stay in touch. That. I am so glad. And can I just say to Blake, I admire <laughs> 
of all the things I admire about you, you know, just your 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 extreme wealth of knowledge, your 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 fantastic podcast, just the the, the punny names that you come up for these <laughs> series. I just love I love all the presents. I love increment vice. I just I can't <laughs> Zodiac Chronicle, I know it's a tougher one, but it it works too. Yeah. I just you're it's, commitment to the bit. And look, and very recently, Katie Walsh and I were talking for the longest time about how to how to penetrate Miami Vice as a topic, and uh, and and as soon as we came up with Miami Nice, it was just like, oh my, it's right there. It's been right there this whole time. We were too close to it. We're too close to it, Justin. It is made a fresh, a fresh set of ears. Just a yeah, fresh set of so. ears. Uh, I credit that all to my best friend Maria Lewis. Uh, she was, she, you know, who actually hates Miami Vice, but she's like, "Of course, it's Miami Nice. What are you even doing?" I'm like, "Okay, fine. You're the best-selling <laughs> author. What do I know?" Um, Justin, you're the best. Thank okay. you so much. This has been such a treat, um, and uh, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. My pleasure. Like, thank you so much for having me. It's been real. That was the incredible Justin Chang. You can find Justin at the LA Times and on NPR's Fresh Air. And you can find him on Twitter at, at Justin C. Chang. And you find all of his stuff there. This has been another episode of All the President's Minutes. And we just want to thank you so much for listening and following along the show. If you want to help us out, we would love if you could share uh, subscribe, rate, review the show. It helps other people discover it. And we have an amazing array of shows coming to One Heat Minute Productions feed or already happening. So right now, we are past the hour mark with Travis Woods' Increment Vice. Next week, Ryan Johnson, director of Brick, The Last Jedi. It is going to be a banger. So you... Definitely need to subscribe and share that one. Josie and the Podcats, our limited series on the 2001 Josie and the Pussycats with host Maria Lewis is almost at the end this week. If you're listening to this episode, in just a day's time, you're going to be able to hear the finale episode with one more bonus episode to go after that. A new show will be popping up to replace Josie in our feed on a weekly basis. That is going to be Miami Nice, where Katie Walsh and I settle in with a couple of mojitos and share all the things we love about Michael Mann's 2006 film Miami Vice. We'll be talking characters, we'll be talking quotes, we'll be talking needle drops, we'll be talking mojitos. And of course, in just a couple of months time, we have our new series, a limited one at that, but nonetheless extensive, Zodiac Chronicle. So one heat minute productions is where you need to go. Our back catalog of amazing shows, Contention, we went through and spent basically a month talking to people uh, on uh, line about the uh, uh, COVID-19 crisis. Last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, one heat minute, our flagship show. Please subscribe, rate, share, review. We'd love if you could do that and we appreciate you and uh, thank you so much for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.